Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Pete Croato. Pete is a longtime journalist, and his writing spans a wide variety of subjects. He's both a part-time copy editor and a freelance writer. He's written for the New York Times, The Athletic, The Pointer Institute, among many other places. For example, if you do a Google search, it immediately brings up articles for Shondaland and Next Avenue, a website for seniors. And he wrote a book about the NBA. Hey, Pete, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Mark. All right, so we ask the same question of you that we ask of everybody. What's your journalism origin story? Oh man, that's a good question. You know, it it's funny. I started I started wanting to be a movie reviewer. And so the first time I remember wanting to be a writer and not in, in the traditional sense in the in more of the journalism sense was was my my grandfather had died. This is in 89 and he had a giant collection of books in his basement in uh, Queens. Bayside. So every so often, my family would visit my grandmother, we'd go through the we'd go through the basement, root through the books, it was there. And one of the trips down, down the stairs, I remember coming across a collection of Roger Ebert's um, movie reviews, I think it was the 85 movie video handbook. And I read that because oh, I like I like movies. And I knew Roger Ebert from the television from I guess at the movies or sneak previews, whatever it was back then. And I just fell in love with the writing. I fell in love with, with how he expressed himself and, and, and the fact that he was in very simple language, expressing very powerful ideas about beauty and, and film and a visual medium. It was, it was an eye opener, but I think in terms of being a journalist, uh, I really think that op- being at TCNJ, the college of New Jersey, which is, you know, our shared alma mater, that really opened my eyes because I had a couple of great journalism professors there and Kim Pearson and Dr. Bob Cole, who were just very experienced and very encouraging and very, very good at what they, at what they as journalists and as teachers. And it was infectious. And then luckily being able to write for the Trenton Times for a couple of years in college, doing a lot of general assignment stuff just really made me fall in love with with reporting with and with journalism, though it took me a little, though it took me a while to really fall back into that love. But yeah, but it was it was about a 10, 12 year process of just, you know, kind of learning, falling in love with writing, different kinds of writing and, and going from there. Was there anything in your heritage or upbringing? We always ask this as well, from the before times that would have lent itself to telling stories? Yeah, I mean, my, 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 my parents are both voracious readers. My mom was an editor, a book, uh, was a book editor in New York for a couple of years. Uh, I forget the name of the publishing house, but she was, but it wasn't one of the big five. It wasn't like HarperCollins or, or, uh, <laughs> or Simon & Schuster, but, but she was, but she was an editor for a couple of years. And my parents were both and still are voracious readers. I mean, my dad, my dad is, is consumes a lot of nonfiction, a lot of, a lot of, um, Jewish history. He's really big into Judaism, even though we're not Jewish. And my mom is loves fiction. I mean, she turned me on to Philip Roth and Tyler. You know, my my dad also turned me on to a lot of humorists like Gene Shepard, Woody Allen, 
so they so they so they always were they were just they were big time readers and they also encouraged me to read and to write professionally even though they were not in that field like my my dad was a contractor for a number for a number of years and my mom helped him run his business before she became an administrative assistant for bank of america so it was so they they were they were not journalists by trade but in terms of their reading habits their curiosity they were they were definitely journalists and and they were they they couldn't have been more supportive and they're still supportive so it was it was a, it was a really good fit. I couldn't have asked for a better upbringing. And an, an, essentially, an inherited trait. So you mentioned Queens. You mentioned College of New Jersey. Just where are you from, and where are you now? Let's see. Well, I was born in Madison, Indiana. I spent two years there. Uh, my dad had my dad got a job working got got a job out there. So my parents moved from New York. They had lived in Queens. Where did they live? But they lived. I don't know what neighborhood. But they lived in Queens. They moved to in they moved to Indiana. And then in 1979, my dad got another job back east. So we all moved back east. And I, so I lived in central New Jersey, Aberdeen, which is about 40 minutes outside of New York City for about 20 years. And uh, so, yeah, that's, that was my upbringing. So now I'm actually in my parents' house right now. Uh, <laughs> you're, I, I know this, this is not only this is a video, po- a video podcast, but I'm in the spare bedroom in, in Aberdeen, New Jersey. But I live just outside of Ithaca, New York. And I've been there since 2015. Gotcha. So you graduated college in 2000. Yes. I know that this is a, a lengthy answer, but that's all right. Explain the circumstances that led to you being a freelancer. Oh, God. How <laughs> much time do you have? I mean, it, it's a <laughs> let's get very... the five minute version. Okay. The five minute version. All right. So after I graduated TCNJ, I, I, re- I desperately wanted to become, I desperately wanted to work in newspapers and I wanted to write for a career. The ultimate goal being, okay, well, I'll be, I'll be a movie reviewer like Roger Ebert. Okay, so I go, so I graduate in two thousand, and I get a job at the Courier News in Bridgewater, New Jersey, which is a Gannett paper. I was just, a, I was a beat reporter there, and I hated every minute of it. Hated every minute. It was just, I think it was for for a number of reasons that are, are too to go into it was just a really bad fit it was a lot it was a gothic amount of work and i wasn't ready for it emotionally there was no support system in place really to teach or to instruct and i just i just sank like a stone so i left i left there after about a year just with my tail between my legs thinking oh my goodness i'm not cut out for this so then in 2003 i finally i got back into the journalism game I wound up working for a trade magazine in East Brunswick, New Jersey, uh, called VRM Inc., which covers the supplement in, supplements, vitamins, things like that. Did that for close to four years, which is probably about three years longer than I should have been there. It was very instructive. I learned a lot. Learned about learned how to write long stories, how to deal with sources, but it was just. To, to put in to put it in perspective, we had an editorial staff of three, one production person, and we put out twenty eight issues a year of magazines. That's more than Rolling Stone. Uh, that's always the comparison I use. It's like Rolling Stone <laughs> comes out biweekly, and they have an editorial staff of I don't know dozens, freelancers, contract workers. We had none of that. So it was the four of us putting together a magazine, twenty years of a magazine, and I. So you know it was. I was burning out. I was miserable. 
and I was I was close to turning 30 and I felt that I wasn't doing anything that I wanted to do as a rider. And I was miserable at my job. And I decided, all right, you know what? I'm going to leave this job, which I probably should have left about two years ago. And I'm going to work, got a job working at Borders, which was right across the street from me. And I'm going to freelance and I'll see how I do. And that's how it got started. And I found that I loved working for myself. I loved writing, having the choice to write what I wanted to write. And I really haven't looked back. That was 2006. So there have been some bumps along the way and I've learned a hell of a lot, but that was what got me started was leaving that job and deciding that I wanted to write for myself. And it worked out really, really well. And I, I have absolutely no regrets about that. So I mentioned that you were that you're also a copy editor and freelancing is mm -hmm. going to be the main subject sure, here. Sure. But just briefly explain what your copy editing work is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I edit five days a week, four hours a day for, um, uh, for, for a major magazine, just editing their blog posts, editing contributors. The site has a number of contributors who provide write-ups based on aggregated content and original stories. So my job is just to edit it, shape it, make sure that it's factually accurate, copy, copy edit, fact check it. It's a, it's a very, it, I, I like it. I compare it to taking swings in a batting cage, you know, keeps me sharp, keeps my writing sharp. And the people I've worked with are, are lovely. So, and I've done it for, I've had the same client for almost 20 years. So it's a very, it's a steady gig. It pays very well and I enjoy it. And it keeps, and it frees me up to do, to do other things, to pursue, to do the Q and A's for Sean the land, to write features for the New York times or other publications. So it's, it's really, a, it's an ideal situation. And as a freelancer, I think it's important to have an anchor gig, especially one where you interact with other people, other employees. That's crucial because again, I mean, I'm by myself, there's no support staff. So it can, so, so instead of, so that, that job not only keeps me busy, it pays steadily. I work with people I like, but it keeps me from turning to Jack Nicholson from the shining. So it, it's a, it's a, it's really, it, it's a good situation. And, you know, I, I'd recommend that for any freelancer to have a, to try and find that kind of steady gig that is not mentally taxing, that isn't, you know, a, a burden or a bane in your mind every night when you go to bed, but that, that keeps you busy and keeps you, keeps you occupied. It's, it's, I find that's pretty important. You have your anchor gig, but your freelancing uh, yeah. is all over the map. Just to run through a few things, these are some that you actually shared with me that you've just yeah. done recently. You did a mm -hmm. Q&A with former New York Giants coach Tom Coughlin about life changes for a senior website. You did another with filmmaker Lizzie Gottlieb about a movie about her father and the writer Robert Caro. You wrote about what was essentially yep. the lacrosse equivalent of Babe Ruth becoming the commissioner of Major League Baseball, a lacrosse player yep. at Johns Hopkins, who now runs the new lacrosse league, that for the school's yeah. alumni Mac. You did a solutions journalism piece for the New Jersey School Board Association website on teaching mm -hmm. digital citizenship. And you just did a sports, another sports piece. You reminisced about baseball cards with an artist who did paintings on for them for the website Defector. How do you come up with all these ideas? Some of those ideas were, were provided to me. The New Jersey School Board Association piece was assigned by a TCNJ alumnus, Tom Parmalay, who now edits that magazine, School Leader. Let's see, the other, that was 
School Board Association was that was yeah that was assigned. Lizzie Gottlieb wasn't was was something I came up with. So was Tom Coughlin. It, it happened a variety of ways. Like I, I will get press releases with interview opportunities from from you know from various lists that I'm on that I've accumulated over the years. And sometimes I'll I'll think you know what that could be a good Q and A possibly. Let me pitch that to Pointer. Let me pitch that to Shondaland or let me pitch that to to whomever. So that's the case with the Q and As. Paul Raybill, the the lacrosse legend. That was uh, there. I got that gig because there was a call for pitches on Twitter. No, actually, no. Pardon me. The editor Greg Renzi, who is who edits John Hopkins Alumni Magazine, said, "Oh, I'm looking for." A sports writer. Can you? Does anyone know anybody? So I raised my hand and said, "I can cover sports. I'm a sports writer. That's me. I can do that." So that worked out really well. And you know, and Defector was interesting because that was written with my brother Dave, who was a longtime editor at Mad Magazine, about Dick Perez, who created who created the Diamond Kings with with Dick Steele, who was right, a, a late. Or, yeah, sorry about that. The late late Philadelphia entrepreneur and sports lover so so yeah he dave had had that idea he tried pitching it landed someplace time passed so he said hey can you pitch it somewhere so i said yeah i'll help you write it and i pitched it to defector where i know i know a few people there so yeah it's really i mean a lot of the times i'm the one coming up with the ideas i kind of to borrow a phrase from taffy broadus or Ackner, i consider myself to be an idea vendor so it's sort of just my nature to be always see something, whether it's reading a book, a magazine article, going online, seeing something and thinking, okay, well, how can I turn this into an article? It's, it's just sort of how I'm wired. So, I mean, so I'd say a majority of, of the stories that you see or, or, or come, a, come, a, come about because I'm thinking about, oh, well, this could work for a different place. I'm not, as, I'm not assigned stories as much as I'd like to be, though I would... I would welcome it. If any editors are listening and want to assign me a story, please, I'm open. But no, I'm, I'm just used to, I'm used to pitching and I, I've, I've grown to love it because it's just, it's, it's almost like a puzzle. You know, where, where can this, what's the best home for the story and how can I fac- facilitate that? You think of it as a puzzle. I think of it as a sales job. I'm curious, what's the key to a good pitch? A key to a good pitch is, is has to be concise. And it has to spell out how you will report the story. It's almost you have to offer. It's almost like offering a blueprint. It's almost like presenting a blueprint, where here's how I'm going. Here's how I'm going. Here's how I'm going to report the story. Here's who I know. Here's why it's a good fit for your publication. Here's why I'm the person to do it. And once it's it's so it's very much like a blueprint or an outline for how for how you do the job. And the key one of the key things that I learned years later is. The subject line is everything. So I think a lot of freelance writers or aspiring freelance writers don't put a much, don't put a lot of attention to the subject line. But if you but if you put writer pitch, and then the title of the of the pitch as you envision it, that's a key that will get editors' attention. And so that is that's something that's helped me immensely is to frame it in a way that it's going to get the editor's attention immediately and that means big bold headlines and a pitch that is maybe three paragraphs long four paragraphs long 
you, you have it, it's it's very you, because again editors are just flooded with emails so even editors i know are, are flooded with emails so i'm always looking to catch their attention in the fewest number of words possible and that and that's really the that's really the 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 golden key for it and i'm thinking that there are probably some keywords too that you would put in a subject line like a lot of things now are pitched at least headline wise as the greatest or the most amazing or the oldest or the yeah. something. Yeah, I don't know. I never I never think of I never think of brandishing the subject letter with fancy glow words. I, I just I just think of, you know, well what's what what's the headline that will make an editor say, Oh geez, yeah, I gotta read this. So like for a re for a recent pitch that I I did that landed in Billy Penn, which is WYY's Wise, excuse me, online affiliate, the public radio station affiliate. I pitched a story about a guy that had worked for the 73 Sixers and the 83 Sixers. And my pitch was meet the man who's worked for the best team in sp Philly sports history and the worst team. And that was, you know, that was enough to get to get their interest. So yeah, I mean it's it, it is a sales job. You're right. It absolutely is. I mean, I'm, I'm in sales, whether I like it or not, I have to sell myself. I have to sell my abilities, but I also, to me, it's also a competition. It's a game. And, you know, I, I kind of, I like the challenge of trying to get an editor to say, yes, it's, it's, it's very, very enjoyable. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, there's something about it that is extremely satisfying when a pitch lands at the right place. It's extremely satisfying. And I, I, I think that's the high that I keep chasing. Nice. So the, I would presume that the Coughlin one, did you you got a press release for his book or availability or something? That, that you know that worked out that that worked out differently. Okay, that worked out differently because I was driving in my car. I there was an announcement about oh well Tom Coughlin has a new book coming out, and I thought okay, I thought Tom wait Tom Coughlin yeah well okay he has a book coming out, my friend co-wrote that book. Because I remembered him coming to me about, hey, you know, I want to see, do you have any editors who can help me out with this? My friend Greg Hanlon, who co-wrote the book. And I thought, let me email Greg and see if Tom would be amenable to chatting. And he was. So it worked out really well. And that only ha that happened just out of, out of pure luck because I had completely forgotten about that book. And I realized that, I realized that oh, yeah, it's out. So I reached out to Greg and he was very happy to facilitate that. Uh, that interview so yeah that didn't happen with the press release the lizzie gottlieb one did happen with the press release but tom coughlin was complete was complete luck almost that's how it works sometimes and with just a yeah. scene set here with him former coach of the new york giants very uh mm -hmm. revered figure in new york sports now now that he's retired the accomplishments that he had two super bowl championships for him two mm -hmm. super bowl wins for him the, with the Coughlin Q&A, it was funny. There was an interesting moment in that one, and I'm trying to picture in my mind mm -hmm. how it went, where he was talking about how <laughs> his wife's death, he now needs to get his life yeah. into a schedule where he's trying to create a sense of order because that's how he's lived his whole life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you comment about how liberating that is, yes. and he immediately comes back with, he doesn't want liberating. And I'm just curious how that played out and how you handle yeah questions and how you handle if then scenarios where the guy might disagree with you no i mean it's it's a conversation that that's how i enter in every in every interview it's it's a well-prepared conversation and 
when something like that happens, it, it's it, it's it's just it's it's a re, it's a, it's just like a normal reaction. I mean, yeah, and even though Tom Coughlin is this has had the story career as a football coach, and he's and he has this reputation as being you know kind of gruff, a little terse. If, if <laughs> and any Giants fan who who watched who watched Tom Coughlin who watched those teams for years and watched press conferences with Tom Coughlin knows that he's not exactly you know a kindergarten teacher right but yeah he's not not at all but the thing the thing that i i I try to have this mindset going to every interview every interaction i have is that you're dealing with people and you know and i try to structure every talk that i have as a conversation and i try to and if someone has a disagreement i'm always my response is always one of openness so if so, I'm trying. I don't remember how exactly that that, that inter, inter exchange went, but I said, but I think it was along, I, but I think I said I said along along the lines of, oh well, really? How is it? Why not? Why is it? How is it not liberating? Why? And that's the key. The key is to keep it open ended and to not press judgment on someone. Not and to and if they do respond like that, to provide provide the opportunity to get them to explain. And I, I feel like that's that's what you want. You want a open-ended dialogue, and you always want to be able to keep the ball rolling. So, for me, an interview is not an opportunity to get into like for, you know first take debate or to state my opinion on something. It's to just offer and it's to offer my opinion as someone who's curious. I mean, if you listen to my if you listen to my interview transcripts, and God forbid, no one sh- should listen to my interviews because they're awful. In terms of the clumsiness and the stammering, but if you listen to them, the phrase that comes up a lot, and I genuinely mean this, is "I'm just curious," and I think that's what I open. That's how I go into each interview: is that I'm I'm just really curious to find out about what makes a person tick. And I think if you if you arm yourself with that, and you know about the subject, you read up, you read their book, you watch their movie. I, I think you're you're in good. I think you're in really good shape because it becomes a conversation. It doesn't become, I have these scripted questions. You know, this is I need to have these ten answers because that that's not a that's not a conversation. That's an interview, and right. th- those are those read like depositions, and they're typically very very boring. I did want to ask about like one or two things about a couple of the different pieces we brought up. The other one is mm-hmm. the lacrosse one. Because yeah. that's more of your traditional feature. It it read as kind of an enjoyable magazine piece, the kind of piece you would read in like a Sports Illustrated or oh, now the, in The Athletic. And I noticed in particular in that one that you liked analogies, like the Babe Ruth commissioner mm-hmm. thing, which was great. I thought that was really fun. How do you come up with good analogies? That's a really good question. I mean, my, my whole thing is to not write anything that I haven't heard before or seen before. <laughs> You know, I think that's that's the goal with any writer, no matter what genre you're in, is you want to offer the reader something new. You don't want to offer the same like as structure. Like, oh, he was as, you know, as scared as a mouse well, or as timid as a mouse. Well, that's boring. You you wanna you wanna you wanna you wanna write you wanna have a you wanna have a simile or a metaphor or whatever that not only conveys the information in the most succinct way possible, but you want it to be fun. And that's the thing with writing, with anything that I write, I'm, I want to have fun. I mean, I'm, there's always, I think if you read, if anyone reads any of the pieces that I write, even the trade magazine pieces, there, there's always something in it for me. I'm always trying to have fun with it because there's someone, because for, for people who read this, like they're not reading 
they need to have fun too. You know, they're, they're, they're not, you know, this isn't, this shouldn't be torture for them. This shouldn't be going to, going to school for them. It should be fun. It should be informative. It should be breezy. And, and that's what I try to do with my writing. I try to, I try to make it, I try, I try to make it as enjoyable and invigorating and as informative for the reader as possible. And that doesn't, doesn't matter if I'm writing a movie review or an interview or an alumni magazine profile. It's, it's all, it's all the same. It's all in this, it's all in the same sandbox. The analogies that comes into play too with stand-up comedy. It's the same principle. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm God, I'm not a stand-up comic, but I mean, it's, I think I maybe I maybe got that just from reading a lot of movie reviews and a lot of sports sure. columnists, where you, you they you have to be you only have maybe eight hundred words to make a point. Yep. So 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 that's very so a simile is a very concise way to to capture a point in a very expressive way. Yep. I mean Jim Murray was was huge with that. I think For sure. uh, Rick Riley was a was big on those. I read a lot of Rick Riley when I was you know in my twenties when he did the back column for SI and. So yeah, I think that's. I think with anything, I mean, it's 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 a garnish. You, you don't want to overpower the reader with anything. So I try not to do that. I'm always very cognizant of, or I try to be cognizant of tropes that come up in my writing. I do my best to eliminate them and just be as original as I can each story out. You made a great comp there, just calling it a garnish. There you go. See, I, I it, it's, it's a reflex. It's I can't, it's. I can't, it's it's natural. That's cool. I can't help myself. I, no, I, I, you know, we're all wired. That's the thing, though. You know, we're, we're all wired certain ways. And I think if you read, you know, if you read any writer, any any writer, they all have tells where you can tell, like, oh, this is a Susan Orlean piece, or oh, this is a, you know, a Gary Smith piece, or whomever. I think I think every writer has their 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 their, their certain flavor that they bring to it, and that's and as they should. You know, but again, I, I, you know, to, again, to use, I, I hate using food analogies, but here we go. You know, I, you know, you, you don't want, if you're eating something, you don't, you don't want to have it just taste of all oregano or all basil. There has to be a nice mix of, it has to be a nice mix. So that's what I, that's what I hope to, to bring to the table with, with when I write something is just, oh, that was, that was pleasant. That was, that was great. And I got everything I needed, but nothing, not too much of one thing. You mentioned movie reviews a couple of times, and we yeah. had a theater and cultural reviewer. This is probably back about a year, year and a half ago. Someone who was based in Atlanta, and she reviewed plays. And one of the mm -hmm. questions that I asked her got a really strong response. I want to see if it gets a similar one from you. When mm -hmm. you're watching a movie, what are you watching for? That's a good question. I mean, I'm looking. I'm looking at how the shots are framed. I'm looking and at how those shots and the camera setup, how, how that tells a story. I'm looking at set design because again, film is a visual medium. I mean, it's, it is all visual. So I want to kind of just break down what the, what that world is like, what I'm seeing. And I'm also looking at characters and, and what their motivations are. And, and if that feels true to real life and if there, if there's a, a universality to that, and you know, and I'm and the thing. I think the most the most important thing for me is I'm always writing notes. I write notes about what I see, what certain certain plot devices, certain twists happen, and, and but I think the most important thing to me is to just be able to have some time with it and sit back and reflect on on what I've watched. I think it's really important. I think 
you know, we kind of live in a time now of instant analysis where, you know, you, you go to the movie, you watch a show and you tweet about it or you post it on Facebook or whatever. But I think to write any, any, any good critical, I think to write, write well about anything from a critical perspective, I think you need to have it sit in your head and marinate and think about what the movie meant to you and, and what struck you about it that's different or the same. So yeah, but it's but it's hard to do that well when you're doing that, you know, every week. It it becomes then you have deadlines. You don't have that luxury, which is I think one reason why I got out of film reviewing was because it was just a lot a, a really heavy workload. And it wasn't and the pay wasn't very good and it wasn't satisfying to me. It, it became it became less satisfying as time went on. But it was, but I still, I still dabble in it, and I still enjoy it. But it's, it's, it's not my first love anymore. Do you have a favorite one that you've that you've done? I wrote a review of Spring Breakers ten years ago that was pretty good, and that people that people whom I respect in my in that movie in the movie review circle, which is, you know, more spec than than a circle for me, they they seem to like it. So that was a that was one that I thought I really I really kind of. I thought I really kind of got what was going on in that movie and was able to express it well, but it's really hard. I mean, writing movie reviews is that's, that's the hardest writing that I've, I think I've done. It's, it's because it's hard to, it's hard to write critically expressively and sequentially in a plot, recapping a plot. It's hard to it's hard to balance all of those things in in one in one article. It's really hard. The ones who do it amazingly well, the Eberts, the Kales, the Wesley Morrises, they're masters. I don't know how they do it. It's it's like a magic trick, and it's 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 one that I've yet to. It's one that I, I've yet to uh, to learn. I would Maybe imagine. Yeah. I would imagine you're still pretty good. You were still pretty good at it, given the length of time for which you've, you've done it. Yeah, but you know what, man? Like they, they, these were not. I wasn't writing like for, for high profile pubs. I mean, I, I, I'm proud of the work that I did for Icon, which was a an A and E publication that's in New Hope, Pennsylvania, that's still around. I, I loved working for Trina uh, McKenna, the publisher and editor there. She's wonderful. Um, but I was never. I mean, I was never writing for high profile pubs. I mean, I was, I mean, most, you know, I, I mean, I, I was, I mean, I think the most I made for a movie was 200 bucks for Deadspin, the old, the old version of it. And, and it was, and it was, it was a fine review, but I, I never, I never got better at it. And the, where I'm writing, you can see, like, I'm not writing for, you know, the new Republic or, <laughs> or Slade or, or Salon. I, I'm, I'm writing for places that, you know where the where a film where being a film critic is just sort of like, all right, we have twenty five dollars. Let's throw it to this. You know, it's, it's a nice this, to have, not a have right. to have kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And again, if you look if you look at publications now, I mean, movie reviews are not really a focal point of the coverage anymore. Yep. We've gone through all these different things: Q and A's, features, movie reviews. Got one more: uh, mm -hmm. oral histories. Uh, yes. I almost never write them. I just did one that had 17 sources. I know you've written some. I saw that there was one that you've done on The Baseball Bunch, a children's TV show yeah. hosted by a baseball legend, Johnny Bench, back in my child, back in our childhood. Yeah. Uh, what's your favorite oral history that you've done? What's the secret to a good one? Well, I've written two uh, that have been published. There's a third that's coming out next month. 
that I think I'm most proud of. I, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say what it's about, but it's on one of the best NBA teams of all time. I'll just leave it at that. Nice. Yeah. So I don't know the, the, I liked both oral histories I've written. I wrote one for the baseball bunch, which you mentioned, which I loved. That was a real, a real time travel piece for me. Cause I grew up watching that show. I used to watch the reruns on ESPN and Marvel at Ozzy Smith being on or, or, Dusty Baker. That was a fun. That was a fun piece. And I wrote another one on sale about Salem Sportswear, the caricature shirt manufacturers for Rolling Stone, which I, I loved. But yeah, the keto good oral history is just getting as many people as you possibly can, and if or, or at least getting the key people, and not just the stars of the show or you know the the talent, so to speak, but to get the directors, the producers, you know the the folks that were you know, involved in the nitty gritty. So for this recent oral history that I wrote, you know, I talked to players, I talked to coaches, but I also talked to the assistant trainer, the, you know, the media relations guy, the, the executive assistant, you know, the, the folks that were on the floor who had the stories. And I think that's, that's the key to any good reporting is to, is to get the people, it's not to get the bold, the, the names in bold, but they get the folks that work behind the scenes who were there for five, 10, 15 years, who not many people talk, not many people talk to, who are eager to talk and want to talk and have fond memories about, about that time. So yeah, that'd be, that'd be my advice to, to writing an oral history. It's just oh. to get, get, get a good variety of people and keep reporting. So you wrote a book from hang time yes. to prime time business entertainment and the birth of the modern day NBA. It's a massive mm -hmm. subject, tons of interviews. There are like 20 interviews with you. If I type your name into a search for on in any podcast app, which is great. So let's, let's just keep it to the most basic question here. Yeah, How did sure. you organize that work into something that be could become a book? That is a good question. What I, I, I use no cards. So I went through all the interviews and went, read through them. And I just, on an index card, I wrote down the main points and then I organized all those points into sections that became chapters. It was, and that, that was, that worked really well for me. I'm sure other people have other ways of doing it, but for me taking, going through all the articles, all the interviews, which I had typed out and putting them down into something tangible that I could look at. It would spur something in my brain, write what I needed to write, put it away, go to the next. That really helped me. And I, and I did, I did the same thing for that oral history that I just mentioned, which was, you know, 45 interviews, 50 interviews, stuff from books. I, the note card system for me works really well because I'm, I'm very much a, I'm very tactile. So I like to have things in my hand. I like to be able to cross things off and, and check things off. So the no card system for me was a lifesaver with that book because I didn't really have a lot of time to write. I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't like I was Bob Carroll and I had, you know, years, you know, to work on, on, you know, volume four of, of my opus. I had a deadline that I was trying to meet and I, and I wanted to get paid. So I had to be very, very, I had to find, I had to find, I had to, find a system that worked for me and one, and one, and one that would work quickly. And that one worked out pretty well. What was this? What was the time it took from the minute of the birth of the idea to the minute that you held the book in your hand for the first time? 
seven years seven years wow because the idea from the book came from an article that i wrote for grantland about marvin gaye's national anthem at the 1983 nba all-star game and as time went on i talked to more people about it it seemed to me that that anthem was the pivot point for when the nba went from being a league that was sort of without an identity that was trying to ape what baseball and football were in terms of being, you know, quote unquote, America's game to becoming a, it's doing its own thing. You know, that is becoming a black sport, embracing the culture and embracing a younger audience. And so that idea just stuck with me and I kept finding stories that would tie into that. So I could cultivate more sources and cultivate more information so that I could create a proposal. So, yeah, so that took, you know, four years to get a book deal, five years to get a book deal, then writing the book and then holding my hand. That took seven years. Wow. So patience. That that is the name of the game. This is not this is not a field for people that want instant gratification and. Yeah, so I, I've I've learned to be very, very, very patient. It's it's probably my best asset. Uh, I can wait for a plane like nobody's business. I can, <laughs> you know, I, I am I am very good at having a book to read and just just waiting for something to happen. Yeah. What are the characteristics besides patience of Pete Croato and his writing? You know, it's funny. I thought about this because you sent that question over, and I, you know, I. It's fun. I wish my wife were here because she could answer that question for me really well because she reads all my stuff. Um, I think the characteristics of, of my writing, I think it's, I think I'm, my wife says this, so I'll, I'll borrow her answer because she's far smarter than I am. And she also has, she's also a third party. So I think I, I kind of shine a light on people that may have been forgotten. I think that's one pretty big characteristic about my writing. And if I don't do that, then I try to find something to a well-known person. Like the Tom Coughlin piece, I think is a good example of that, where I didn't want to just talk about, hey, coach, you know, what was it like, you know, in, in you know, when, when Eli dropped back and, and found David Tyree or, hey, you know, when, when, when Eli found Merrill Manningham on the sideline a couple of years, a few years later, what was that like? I, I want to find what makes people tick and what, who they are. And I think that's, that's probably the 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 through line that you kind of see in my writing is is me trying to figure out what people are like and what make them go and that could be anybody from David Stern to the San Diego Chicken to you know to to a to a director like Lizzie Gottlieb I, I I'm curious about people more than just their accomplishments I want to find out what drives them to get to the accomplishments what the path was to the accomplishment. So I think that's kind of the theme in my writing. And then, you know, as I said before, I think my writing style is, I think it's, I think it's breezy. I think it's accessible. I think it's informative and I think it's, you know, I don't know, but again, like those are the, those, those are the characteristics that I see. Like when I read, when I read my work out loud and I'm getting ready, that's how I see it. And I'm probably the worst judge because I'm sure someone reads my stuff and says, oh, that's kind of turgid. Like, ah, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, Kind of a lengthy paragraph there, Chief. I wouldn't have would have ended it there a little a little a little sooner. But I, I do think that I do think that my my writing is and and, and my storytelling ha, does it definitely has a certain flavor to it. I think, but I think 
when I think about it, I think it's shining light on people that maybe haven't had their stories told and and just maybe having a little bit of of oomph and jazz to the prose, not being just trying to trying to have fun with the writing. And if I if if someone walks away feeling that way, then I've done my job. Oomph and jazz. I like it. Yeah. So lastly, your overarching advice to freelancing aspirants is? I think it, it goes down to being patient. And I think you have to you have to be patient and you have to be afraid. You have to be unafraid to to fail, to be rejected. You you have to just not care. Um you mentioned before that freelance writing is a lot like is a lot like sales, and it is. You're you're selling yourself and you have to have confidence in what you're selling because nobody wants to buy anything from a salesman who doesn't believe in their product. So you have to be, you have to be, you have to persevere and you have to be, you have to be confident and you have to, you have to be very, very patient because again, like there are, and look, there are some writers who come right out of the gate and they're just, they are, they, they nail it and they, they get it done and they, they're, they're in all the top tier publications. And that's wonderful. I don't begrudge anybody, any success, especially those who've done the work, but for a lot of, a lot of writers, it's a lot of trial and error. And I mean, geez, I mean, I was published in the New York times when I was 30, my first time was I was 35 and I've been at this for six years. I mean, my, my book contract, I signed that when I was when I was 40. I mean, my first byline in a public, my, my book came out when I was 43. So you have to be patient, but if you believe in yourself, if you are open for, to advice, if you're open to learn, and not just from the writing side, but from the business side of it, how to approach editors, how to how to how to apply for work, how to save money, all that business horse sense, um, you'll be okay. But it, it's you have to believe in yourself unerringly, and you have to be willing to take the lumps but if you take the lumps you should be okay but it's but i will say this there is no fit i mean this worked for me and it still works for me but it may not work for you and that's okay um you know i you know i know freelance writers who love doing this and they want to keep doing it till the day they die and i know some freelancers who would kill for a staff job this may not be for you and that's okay but if it is you know i have i have found this to be a a challenging but a very very, very rewarding way to make a living. And I'm glad I stuck with it. And I shall say this, th and this may sound a little, a little clinical, but this can be a very lonely profession. It can be a very isolating profession. You need to get out of the house. You need to go for a walk. You, you need to have dinner with friends. You, if you can afford to, you need to see, you should maybe see a therapist because you are stuck in your head a lot. And that can be, that can be very draining. So yeah, it, it's, you know, people make writing out to be the solitary profession where you're, you're just, it's just you against the windmill of your mind. But at the end of the day, it's just a job and people's jobs, you know, have families, they have kids, they, they go out, they go on vacations, they have dinners out and you should do the same thing. It's, it's, you're, you're not, this isn't, you don't have to be a martyr in, in this line of work, <laughs> nor should you be a martyr. Um, so yeah, that, that'd be my, that's my, I guess, my long-winded advice for, for folks. Well, I hope that you do write a book about it someday. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise to close the show. 
Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you would like to salute for their good work? Ideally, one that you're not affiliated with. Yes, I would. Parker Malloy, who's a journalist based in Chicago, writes a really wonderful newsletter on politics and media called The Present Age. She's written for Upworthy, Media Matters. She is a marvelous journalist and she's extremely insightful and she is very much, she she is incisive and and a absolutely fearless in a way in addressing the media and addressing politics, especially transgender issues because she's she's a she's transgender. Um, that is just it's it, that I I find awe inspiring. She really is a hero of mine. So she's somebody who I think does remarkable work. And if you have a few a few dollars to spare, the present age is I think fifty dollars a year. It's a wonderful newsletter, and I think I don't think anyone writes with as much insight. And honesty about the media as as Parker does. It's it's she's she's truly terrific at what she does. Pete Croato, thanks for taking the time to join us. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at journalismpod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.